Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to comic, author, film director Richard Iwadi. Richard's new book, Iwadi on Top, is out now. Richard Iwadi is amazing and I feel sort of gently in love with him and have been emailing him pretty much on the hour ever since. And I'm hoping that we've made a connection and Richard, if you are listening... It meant something to me. For me, it was all real. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Malcolm Gladwell. Here's our dem comments coming out of you. Annie Herrick said, This is my favourite interview yet, I think, of all time, including Frost Nixon or anything ever said by... I'm making out now. She just said she liked the interview. Peter Gray UK, enjoying listening this and struck by Malcolm's comments about sacrificing when people get together and this bringing meaning with a reference to earlier when talking about people going to church they're sacrificing the differences you're really writing this in real time Peter Gray UK sacrificing their differences towards each other by being there together is this enough exertion to bring meaning and joy because I'm such mind you you're called Peter Gray UK maybe you don't have this Dutch accent I'm giving you do they need to go for a run as part of the church service I'm sorry, you don't probably have this accent. For it to be a fully a fully life-giving, Malcolm's idea is in keeping with the old quote that faith without action is dead. Yes, yeah, the very good quote. I'm very familiar with it. KMJordan.space. Malcolm is just fantastic. Great show. Georgina Littleton. What a way to start a Saturday morning. Malcolm Gladwell manages to combine extraordinary intellect with humility and humour. A rare yet beautiful combination. Thank you. He was a delightful, thin... I would say... Like, he was very like runnery. Low body fat nice intensity the like machinist intensity of christian bow and a sort of um what i want to say is like it's like a sadhu like an ashen mystic man check out my youtube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos there's new videos every single bloody week about well-being spirituality self-care and clips from this podcast we we check the comments on each video i may not respond to all of them but by god will i read them tell me what you'd like to see more of so we can provide video content just for you. Sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com. You'll be the first to be told about my upcoming shows and receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. Check out my comedy special Rebirth on Netflix. Get in touch on social media. Let me know what you think about the podcast. At Rusty Rockets on Twitter or just Russell Brand on Instagram. Let's get into Richard Iwadi, the tender, gentle, newly shorn, but perennially beautiful director Auteur, commentator, ironist, wit, Englishman, I would say. Great Englishman, future national treasure, Richard Iowadi. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Do you like um, DIY? Well, look, I'm. How are you with that? How are you with that? Not bad. What's Let the, me say that. What's Not the. Bad. M- m- Let me talk about my DIY history. Yeah. I built a pergola. Is it called per- Pergola? Pergola. I don't know what that is. Well. Is it an outdoor swing? It's sort of. It's a glorified frame. So you know those frames that are linked as like a square and then you'd hang hanging baskets off them and 
They're yeah. they're big in the suburbs. And you built one. I built one of those. I, I, was, assembled... I was five. <laughs> yeah, still chief among your achievements it's on my cv <laughs> i really yeah it's pretty good but uh i quite like diy i like making things well i've had to almost entirely overhaul my entire personality okay. in middle age because right. i'd dedicated my early life to the pursuit I don't know if you noticed sure. because you were busy living your own life but to the pursuit of uh, celebrity and so I've sort of like zealously bought into the right. worst aspects of the ideals well, of our age I mean I've, I I don't know the full story how could I, you? exactly um, walk a mile in my shoes <laughs> um, but I'm aware that you were in papers <laughs> yes that's um, with, with with frequency but, I mean, who's to say why exactly that was? That's right, because we aren't responsible for the way that we are received and no. is subsequently rendered in secondary media. And I think a lot of the mental illness we see from people in our... Should we call it an industry or should we call it a game? That um, Frolic? <laughs> in our frolic is because of being dominated or hypnotised by what happens in that sort of secondary media yes. space. And you deal with it really interestingly. Firstly, I'll say something disarmingly kind I to you. I thought you were going to say badly, and I would have gone along with that. <laughs> um, it felt like you went, the fence had the word bad on, and you went, interesting. <laughs> Which I think was, was kind. That was kind. So th this won't be your first act of kindness. Here comes the second. Okay, thank I you. I admire you. I think you're doing really, really interesting things. I think you're brilliant. Well, you're kind to lie. lovely. You're kind to lie. Um, but what are look, you? Quite modest and shy, really. What have you become an entertainer for, then? How? I never entertained anyone <laughs> in my life. I mean, people... Um, I mean, generally, I, I'd advise people to tune me out. But I, I, I don't feel I've entertained people. I mean, genuinely, as in most things I've done, people have gone, no more of that, please. That's been the feeling I've had. And, and quite rightly. So... I think, and in a way, I mean... You're really English. And yet, that seems odd. Yeah, because my parents weren't. But, hmm, Englishness is quite strange, isn't it? What what, what do you feel Englishness is to well, you? Because I, I don't quite know what it is. Well, this is an interesting time to assess it. But when I use it to describe you there mm. i think that you're being sort of modest right. and disarming but i know that you are fiercely intelligent and i've seen you be eviscerating on the television so i know that there's an aspect of you that is i i feel that perhaps you are cautious around sincerity and that, that that's an, a, an assessment i'm making from your brilliant work with like the garth merengue stuff right. it was like uh, so, uh, sublime irony and like and but like I think that it was I think that you and Matt Berry your sort of performance styles there like I thought it was really innovative and unusual for people to be so brazenly discordant <laughs> and right. to disregard conventions around acting even comic acting so flagrantly and, and brilliantly well you're kind to say I mean we were I certainly had the gift of being terrible already so i in a way no one i don't feel anyone wants to be funny as the first thing they do in any way that generally you know brad pitt that's not the first thing he needs to try to do he can 
just be handsome and charming and that's that's a good life um i generally think that what i found funny is people really trying to be serious in a way and just people laughing that's all i think your your people work out there's something not right with you and they start laughing and you go if i pretend that i decided that you're going to laugh at me that might be better and so with that show i don't know i've never spoken about that show out of character in an awful way um because we did all of our press in character as these two it, so yeah it's i don't want to presume anyone knows what it is it's just like a spoof horror show in a certain way written by this pompous horror writer and so whenever we did interviews about the show which we did in Edinburgh we did them as Garth and his publicity manager um, because it seemed too much to do a show about people pompously talking about how great they are and then do interviews talking about how in a way great you were for coming up with this thing about people being pompously great as in it seemed that seemed a bit too snake eating its own tail and also just I don't know, it just didn't seem like it would be fun or interesting to talk about in that way. So a lot of that show, I think, harnessed our own limitations that we had. Possibly that's true of even declared and overt great artists. Uh, perhaps all of us are, by definition, ultimately, uh, it's our limitations. That... I suppose, yes. I mean, I've been reading mm, uh, Somerset Maugham and Moon and Sixpence. Have you read that? That's No. It's really interesting. I think it's based on the life of Paul Gauguin and about this stockbroker type person in Paris who just one day decides to become a painter at 40 and just seems to completely change personality and is utterly un uncompromising and he ends up being this genius and no one everyone just thought you're crazy for doing this but he's brilliant and he's totally amoral and i think i'm just i'm interested in someone who does that and just is not that good that seems <laughs> that seems a more interesting story in a way to me, like you just go, no, I'm going to be a painter, and everyone goes, you shouldn't be a painter, and then at some stage, going, yeah, I shouldn't have been a painter. <laughs> that seems, I don't know. There's something funny about failure, in that way. Um, so yes, I I always found it interesting. People really reaching for something and missing because that is, that's just what most experience I think is, sort of missing. It's a misalignment, isn't it? Uh, of I some think, kind I think you're right but perhaps the uh, the way that we construct uh, like a, a, a perfect resolution yeah like say perfectionism yeah in itself is if not arbitrary it's it, it's impossible to fulfill and not only because of the requirements of the word perfect but also yeah. because I don't think that whenever you arrive in those places, it never feels fulfilling. I'm interested that you're more no. fascinated by mediocrity than genius, because I like that that story of when people inadvertently happen upon uh, genius, like in yeah. Bullets Over Broadway, the yes. Woody Allen film, yeah, yeah, or um, or like in um, like in Mozart in uh, yeah. Amadeus, yeah, yeah. Feel like that, yeah. like that genius might just visit sort of yes. vulgar genius. Yes, and, and it's it can be over there, and yes, this cultivated person who feels like they should have, they just don't have it. And I mean, Woody Allen, I think that he does believe 
that there is such a thing as genius and some people just born with it. He doesn't think you can become funny, I think. Yeah, and you feel like that the, the reason that you moved into a sort of parody, like these which yeah. are brilliant parody, but par- parodic um, like scripted comedies like Garth Marenghi and that, that rock opera thing you've done, like lots right. of stuff, and the, the, chat sh- the Dean Lerner chat show is because you felt that that's what you did anyway those those kind of performances because it is masterful in a way uh, in a in, like to do something it's like say Dave Shrigley those uh, the, right. the illustrations of Dave Shrigley yeah. just because something looks simple and basic that doesn't mean that it's easier to yeah. achieve and I've seen again with you know when you have won awards for playing Moss in IT crowd you say like um Oh, well, it's just by happenstance I'm incapable of expressing emotion. I'm a membrane that yeah. Graham Linehan pushes stuff through. Uh, that's it's interesting. I suppose that, that makes me think you must be a very self-assured man. I, I don't think I am. Um, more as in I don't, I, I wouldn't know, as in I wouldn't be close to that being the case, but my, that doesn't feel like that from this side of the machine. Do you mean you worry? Um, worry. Yeah, I don't know. Not so much worry, but as in more that I just know that I'm not so good at things, and that's okay. But it's it doesn't. I don't think that worries me too much. That I. But that's partly because a lot of the people I really like are beyond what I would be interested in doing. You know, they're they're so great that it would. It's there's no disgrace in not being as good as Velasquez you just go that's okay that's just I don't look at that and go oh mate I just go okay great um but I mean those shows I mean I had no interest in horror whatsoever um before doing that show and so in a way it was through Matt Holness being interested in horror and that and coming and I always felt I was sort of more just operating as a fan of the people in the show and doing my uh, contributing to that, and my interest was in the gap between intention and execution. I mean, Susan Sontag um, was saying this thing about her book Notes on Camp. Why, why are certain things seen as? And I guess this was written in the when was it written? The sixties, maybe. So it had a different idea, maybe, of what we currently see camp as being. But somehow that there's a you, you can tell what the intention of a, a work of art is versus how it's been realized. And if there's a kind of dissonance between those two, there's something enjoyable about that. There's something enjoyable. I mean, I have always liked, say, black exploitation films. And there's something enjoyable about the scope, about social commentary, trying to really go into an area, trying to really change things ostensibly, but really it's people running along dots and flares with kind of wah-wah music and the dissonance between some quite lofty ideas and the the housing of it just can be quite funny and pleasurable and in a way I suppose to take the example of someone doing something and it not turning out so well I guess what it shows is the the wrong intention that there's an intention to be great and that isn't a good intention because what is that? You should be interested in the thing and who knows what it will be. But to deliberately shoot for something and you can see that wasn't quite the thing. It's fa- I mean, the very basic example is just someone really winding up for a penalty and missing. There's something just 
the whole drama, the build-up, the kind of self-importance, the seriousness, the spotting, and then just missing. There's something... And, and I don't think it's just a kind of, ah, look at their mocking thing. It's just a, that's what life is. <laughs> yeah. It's beyond schadenfreude and even bathos, but it's the inability of human beings to at least consistently be beautiful or to be magical. Or... Yeah, exactly. Just how silly sometimes just, just occupying space. Go, this is ridiculous. What is this? And it's, I... I I feel really warmly to um, to things that would be considered um, not maybe campy or, or schlocky. I sort of feel closer to the people who make those things than people who feel quite slick, like Michael Bay or someone. I go, I just don't, I just can't see that a person made this. I have no connection to it. Whereas I really like Edward, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space. I really feel in some way connected to that film. Yeah, the fallibility, the aiming and missing. You yeah. find that beautiful. Hey, what do you think of... Did you see when Grayson Perry did those three documentaries on class and taste? Oh, right. Yeah, I saw... Well, I saw the tapestry exhibition in Bristol. So I haven't seen the shows, but I saw that, which I thought was brilliant. I, yeah, I loved them. And, yeah, the kind of progress of class and the bowls and the... Yeah, it was amazing. I thought it was great. He was saying that uh, that sort of the lower down the sort of social hierarchy you are, the more likely your taste is going to be overt and bling and gaudy, and coming becoming subtler as it sort of like as you have more access to wealth or status or whatever. But the thing that was I thought very interesting was a bit where he said like in the, they had footage of a woman at a working men's club somewhere presumably in the north where yes. a man was singing like a Delilah or whatever right and she was sort of like pissed and at the front and like crying yeah and Grayson Perry in the commentary says like that how is that different from someone at Tosca having that yeah. how are we and and I wonder do you think it's somehow to do with this idea of well-executed intention is camp and kitsch is about we understand reference A is the aspiration to some form of recognisable or classical greatness and the secondary component is that this is a sort of a bundled together uh, measurable mess you can sort of see how it's not achieved well I, I think it operates across class in mm. that art deco is quite camp you know it's got a sort of lifelessness a kind of sort of weird i mean take all that burn jones stuff that andrew lloyd webber quite likes it's quite sort of camp and you know there's certain operas that feel like that and you know the fall do not seem camp you know in terms of it doesn't feel like they're going for something and they've missed it I, it's more your own yeah it's just showing your own hubris maybe it's that it's kind of you see what someone's reaching for versus what they're actually doing. And I guess that's an interesting thing to see. I mean, Aaron Sorkin, he's always kind of going, well, drama's just intention obstacle. So in a way, in that sense, the intention is, which I think is a silly intention, greatness, and the obstacle is you. <laughs> you know, and so that's kind of a funny, dramatic thing to see somehow. You know... um, like yeah bullets over broadway it's just 
I want to write this great play, but I have to cast this person who's got a terrible, or sing in the rain. That's just the great thing. We want to do this musical. We, we now want sound, but the, the, the film star from the silent era who's now going to be speaking has got this terrible voice. And so this is going to make that film funny because she's all grateful and there's this voice coming out. It's that, this the attention there that's fun. Without leaping into Jung, do you reckon that that's resourced from our, the peculiar fusion of the simian and the divine, that somehow right. within us there is that aspiration to be whole and holy and beautiful, right. and yet the sort of gastric fluctuations and snot yes. and stumbling that being Oh, human. yeah, the bladder that must be drained, you know, that's a Navikos phrase, you know, the pencil that must be sharpened, the bladder that must be drained. Yeah, just the continual bodily limitations. And yes, just... But also... It's also f people not being okay with it. Like, why can't you be okay with your sort of limitations and your, your fleshliness, your creatureliness in a certain way? And so maybe it, it operates both ways. Maybe it's not that we should be reaching there and we're falling short. It, may, it should be also this is also a place that can be occupied in a fine way. Don't you think it's because... And that they're not too polar it's not like this is good this is bad or whatever you know? well i reckon to refer to some of your earlier ideas say like michael bay it's like we we acknowledge there's an external metric this is what greatness looks like yeah. and people that are great seem to unconsciously be able to realize that without reference to and here i'm now striving for greatness it just flows through them and the sort of kitsch or camp or bad art yeah. is is aware of that and is aspiring to this external thing yeah. now and, and and i reckon there's a correlation between that and the civilizing influences that are you know primarily about the denial of our baser bodily natures our yeah. appetites our drives that reveal generally our sort of yeah what in, you in a sort of id superego kind of way as in the stuff that comes out in dreams. Is that what you mean? Yes, and I mean that as long as we this are... This is the most eye contact I've ever been involved really with well. in my life. I mean, normally, <laughs> normally the eyes would only have got up to here after 20 minutes, but I'm really trying to focus here. You're doing and so well. I'm pretending to be a person. <laughs> You're really pulling it Thank off, you. Richard. No one knows. The it's algorithm is working knows. very well. If you, it's a triumph, this algorithm. I will feed this back to my programmers. Tell them that this, this is... So I would far. say the summit. Use this as a template yeah. for future for future appearance. Richard if I start Iwadi. puking milk in a way, <laughs> then, then you'll know it's got too stressful. The intimacy, but so far we can even amend that. So the bit where he vomited lactose. Yeah, you just cut that out. Don't do that in your next venture. Exactly. It's okay. a simple yes. and obvious problem that if yes. we could just eliminate he probably did a bit too much eye contact in retrospect. Too much. That was the last thing he was talking about. He was talking about eye contact. Too much too soon. Loads of milk. Yeah. The, the hydraulic fluid just came spurting out. Seems like a natural point to change the subject a bit. So you've written oh, yes. this book then? Yes. I Waddy on top and it's yeah. what is it? That's a good question. <laughs> Do it your research. Yes, no. <laughs> No, it is. Well, this is what it is. And I don't have a pitch for it, which is a, a problem. It is really about a film called View from the Top, which is a Gwyneth Paltrow air stewardess comedy that came out in 2003. 
Um, my wife and I saw this film, and never has a film baffled me more at each stroke of its existence. And it seems so amazingly poor, given the elements, that I thought, what, what would happen if you pretended that everyone stood behind every decision in this film? And so to treat this film like it's Citizen Kane mm. and write about it, write a serious analysis of this film as though it's the greatest thing that has ever been recorded. Because, I mean, you know, it's a cliche, no one sets out to make a bad film. But I, I definitely think there are films where, you know, this might not be so good. Yeah. Um, but in a what way... What was the problem with On Top? This is the thing. I, it, it felt that everyone was filming it on their way to something else. <laughs> in a certain way you you felt that the first question was how long will this last and then okay i can i can maybe fit this in there's so many things gwyneth paltrow plays a blue collar person so this is she plays someone who grew up in a trailer park so so there's that um, the, does, um is she not able to successfully deliver the, the idea that she's from that trailer park it doesn't seem in her demeanor she doesn't alter her demeanor greatly, but <laughs> it's 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 hard to fathom exactly. I mean, who knows what the decisions were, but it's a spirited um, performance in a certain way. Um, <laughs> but and she's very dignified, and she's she's got a sort of dignity, and I think she's, I think she's sort of nat. It's almost she's known for this aspirational pep, but I think that the thing that she's good at is. Um, being disillusioned and and slightly unwilling to participate she's really good in raw tenenbaums i think she's yeah. quite good at being surly and sort of unwilling to be present in a way <laughs> and so um <laughs> for her to look like she really wants also what is a relatively low level goal for a gwyneth paltrow type which is to become an air stewardess um seems odd and also it feels incredibly patronizing here's the main thing that i found um strange about the film i feel that there's a trope in comedies at the moment and there has been for a long time whereby you have a career-driven person and at some stage um towards the end of act two they have to decide look i really do want to spend more time with chad i need to go to his piano recital because it means a lot to him and i can't just yes, the Yamamoto Corporation are on my back and I've got to get this presentation in and my boss has been on my ass for a long time about this and I'm going to lose my job and th there's this guy, he's coming up. But family's more important and I'm going to go to that recital and Bob, Chad is going to really like, I always change his name to Bobby, it's almost <laughs> as if they could be interchangeable. He's going to play really well at that piano recital and we're going to hug and we're going to know that was the best thing and then at that moment the boss will say hang on that idea that we rejected on page 10 is actually really good and so now you're going to have a promotion and it feels that there's essentially a thing in films whereby we the audience are being hugely patronized as people going to see these films which are expensive um <laughs> And being told to give up jobs at the same time, as if there's a kind of inherent phoniness to any activity that isn't creative. Because also, that, that film does not work if the guy is a brain surgeon. You know, there's no film where it says, stop 
the cancer research, you've got to spend more time here. A child's piano recital. And have a, a, yeah. a, a more laissez-faire attitude to brain surgery. Exactly. Lighten up. And there's a sense of, oh, we, we the filmmakers, who obviously haven't seen our families while we're making the film about how you need to spend more time with family, we're involved in creative things, and that's really important. But <sighs> you, the cotidian, living out these kind of small lives, don't get too involved in the unimportant things. And it just doesn't feel that anyone doing it believes that. I just don't... It just yes. doesn't feel truthful, and it doesn't feel sort of rigorous enough on the actual price you pay I think for being involved in relationships because I think it always has to have a kind of cake and eat it motive whereby somehow you spend more time with your family and you get richer in the commercial world and I don't know that that is the case yes and I'd be more interested in seeing something where someone gives up the path of riches and it just is they're poorer <laughs> and they're spending more time with the family and that also is really hard or stressful it's it's when you see that you're not being treated truthfully by um the maker of something that it just seems ridiculous yeah you think in a sense it's disingenuous and it's a yeah. kind of mundial deus ex machina like yeah. oh you can now for no real reason have yes. both of those things now i would say richard that what's probably do you... not a great pitch for the book <laughs> no no it's not because like i'll read it because you're incapable of promoting your own work it says here look Stephen Fry has said it's a work of shimmering shimmering genius and Caitlin Moran has said it's hilarious, but she was talking. Both Previ of these people are talking about books. previous, previous books, books. This that you've already written. <laughs> yeah, but nonetheless, these, these, both of these remarks seem to indicate you're a man of talent. I'm so sorry it's so hot in here. No, the only fine. way to cope, shut down. Okay, yes. Shut no, down. Like, it, it does look like I'm under investigation. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I, well, I will shut down. I, I'm trying to think of a better way to sort of talk about what bugged me because it seems so trivial. No, it doesn't. I know, I've it, got some points I would like to yes. make. They won't take long. No, I'd love you it know if me, it took I'm a lot a of time. succinct man. Please, don't force me into a compliment. Oh, uh, here we go. What it is, is if you... I'm not suggesting this in a conspiratorial or even a deliberate or conscious way, but if you question what are the motives of the mainstream film industry, perhaps from a, say, post-structuralist perspective, right. what is the function? And yeah. if the function is, is that, that they are a kind of a palliative, a kind of dumb, soothing force, even sort of great blockbuster works of pop art, like uh, still ultimately uh, deeply formulaic, and that doesn't mean they don't occasionally touch on truth like great mm. superhero movies yeah. or franchise movies well, or whatever. Star Wars is a weird film and very specific like the first one is you know that's clearly the work of a slightly strange chap yeah would you uh, can we, um, we'll come investigate that. that a little bit in a second but like what I reckon Richard is yeah. that, that what you are observing and breaking down is that sort of inhered within works of this nature is a kind of lumpen clumsiness and that they're in my opinion there might be something quite uh, malevolent about it if you regard it politically for a moment that that, mm. that, that, that message of you know you like even that sense of distinction that this is for you and yeah. these these are the lives you should aspire to and these are the stories that are fit for you it's a sort of it's an enforcing a very um, I would say um, low-level 
dumb and bludgeoned kind of state in the audience. I think it shows a dis and and the the disregard for the audience is present in this the motivating ideals of the film and in the way it's rendered in the case. The yeah, audience. yeah, I think so. And but also how it can be done by quite casually that you can drift into doing that and and it's not to say that somehow I'm outside of that and being a, somehow able to critique and go oh you haven't achieved your artistic uh, potential here but it's more there's more something about it that just feels that unless you feel the audience is far more intelligent than you you're well you're just wrong you were just factually wrong Billy Wilder said this thing that individually the audience may not be brilliant but together they're a genius and i think there is that there's something audiences know if they're being cheated or if they're being condescended to and so it just seems very it's it's very fun to see something it's why people like watching those ads where like the boss of the company decides to sell carpets so you just go i know what's happened here you've said it's fine i'll handle it <laughs> i'll handle it i am carpet right but you know oh you you didn't get the best person to do this you you made a mistake and everyone can feel it so there's there's something just uh, a silly about feeling oh well the audience will buy this or the audience will take this the audience always knows more i think than you i mean there's just more of them for a start and they're just responding in real time they don't have all of your baggage they're not deluding themselves about whether this is interesting or not they have all of these advantages over you um so mm. you really challenge the ideas such as greatness and you're actually quite optimistic about people hey like if you feel that sort of collectively there is a sort of a, a power yeah. and a well you know i love the thing in um salinger where he was talking about how you should always write for the fat lady which is this kind of ideal reader who who's only who i think maybe it's in franny and zooey or it might be in seymour introduction where i think seymour said always imagine in the audience it's like your favorite aunt it's like the fat lady and that that's your favorite show and even when you don't want to do this show and you're kind of annoyed and your shoes are tight and you go Ugh, you just go this is her favorite show and you have to kind of completely do it for her this is you you can't just condescend and just not bother you. This is her moment. She really wants to connect to the show. And they'd all pull themselves up and kind of do this performance on. I always mix it up with the Magnolia, what the kids know, because I feel it's basically the same show. But, you know, the what's the kid show in the Salinger one that they're all on, that the, the, the Glass family are, and so they all do the show really well. But, I yeah, I think, I I do think audiences do know what's what's up. I mean, it's not to say that I do think audiences can also go, I'm going to watch this because it's terrible. You know, I do you remember that stage when everyone said, started saying, oh, you need to watch this. It's awful. And that's thing started to happen. So, so I think I don't think audiences are always wanting to watch. Thank you very much. Um, I don't think audience are always trying to watch things because it's the most challenging or elevated sometimes you want to watch something for all sorts of reasons but i think audiences know what's what hey what do you think about uh that marxist edict that the end days will be defined by kitsch parody and pastiche which right. i took to mean that we will lose our ability to and i i, I take your point on the striving for greatness because mm. that is 
already adhering yeah. to a pre-established structure and living yeah. within pre-established limitations so yeah. it cannot ever really challenge power to politicize it briefly for a moment um but what i feel is that when we are uh when like when there is no sort of heart and yeah. aspiration and this is yeah, like yeah. sort of quite curious about you because like even though you work in sort of satire and parody and you have a wry and ironic way and that you're very deadpan as a an actor it seems that uh, and is evident that you're very interested in beauty and you're very interested in truth and you've got a lot of romance and loving you what do you think about that thing the marxist the marxist thing? edict well look hmm well, my wife's doing an MA at the moment, which is largely about beauty and um, the idea of beauty and as a sort of lost idea within theological principles. So all I can say is you got the wrong person here um, out of the, the couple of us. Uh, so apologies for that, because she'd give you a better answer. Have um, you not been listening? When she's been riffing on it, I, what do you so, do? So let, so, shut right so, down. So let me let me paraphrase uh, something that she'd say much more interestingly. I mean, in in terms of yeah, what you said reminded me of um, a Peter Cook thing, which was saying that one day everyone will just go giggling into the sea, and that not being a good thing. Yeah, a kind of sort of oh, you can't take anything seriously. No one's really engaged. Everything's kind of held at a distance. That isn't a good state, but I don't know that parody necessarily is that or jokes are that because I think jokes are sort of generally about, they don't work unless they have chime in some way and that kind of chiming is a kind of truth. Parody, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what that means. When I think of something being pastiche, I more think of something which is like a facsimile of the real thing yes. and doesn't really contain humour. Yes. Um, so, Maybe a little bit like what you just said about that. Yeah. Winnie Paltrow. We've like seen that template. film so many yes. times. And you, you know, it's you, these people meet, they're going to go apart and they're going to come back together. And the romantic interest is going to work in this way. And no one's going to... You know, it'd be interesting if that film was different. Actually, I'm really just going to focus on being an air steward. <laughs> I just don't have time for a relationship. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that would be an interesting character. And another thing that I find is, is just very patronizing in terms of aspiration because all the, air steward, the, 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 the role of the air stewardess, which it was only for a while before it became mixed later in the, you know, it, it used to be, a, it, it started off, you could only have male um, cabin crew and then someone had the idea that oh we can make air travel more um, attractive if it's nurses and there's some kind of you're being looked after and so there these glamorous nurses and there's a cutoff point of 30 because otherwise you know how could you enjoy your flight if just this old person was attending to you this crone I know I mean you just see death staring you in the <laughs> face literally someone's face crumbling um, and so I, I don't even know what the end of that train of thought was but I suppose mm, to go back. We're talking about the lack of truth and the lack I, of aspiration yeah. in this film, and, and how yes. that's driven. Sort of, in a sense, it seems to be that you're striving for something deeper, uh, like you know, obviously deeper than an analysis yeah. of that particular film. But also, yes. you were saying that parody and past, yeah. like you were breaking down pastiche and parody a little bit, so that because yes. I'm not dismissive about the power of comedy, the authenticity of comedy, yeah. the beauty and the divinity of comedy. Yes. But I'm talking in a sense about like cultural objects that have no genuine aspiration. That 
are not about rousing yeah. people, connecting with people, telling yeah. people stories that encourage them, but sort of let, let sort of perhaps nullify them. Well, here's the thing that I don't know whether this will relate to exactly, but as soon as things become about interpretation, this is another Susan Sontag theory. As as soon as I guess is this like a post-Plato idea that there's 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 the ideal and then there's reality which is a kind of um, unsatisfactory copy of that and then art is just a mimetic version of that unsatisfactory copy so art's not so good it's rubbish but that idea somehow that you create something the the purpose of art is to kind of copy life therefore you try and interpret what the piece of art is telling you to do and then you get the meaning might not be a very good way of looking at art and that the surface of art is art you know there isn't it's not like you just go oh this painting's great i don't like anything i don't like the texture or the colors i really like what it's saying the the form is the content and when they're misaligned that's a problem and also in a way art i suppose used to be a kind of ritual thing and and something that you'd live in a certain way that the reason you tell someone a story is not just to teach them a lesson there'd be a kind of participatory element you'd bring it together and it was tied together with meaning somehow it was tied to there was an importance to the enacting of it as well as what it was saying i think if you try and separate the two out you you're in for problems so i don't know if that answers the question in any way but I'm suspicious of anything that just has a message that is didactic only because it just doesn't seem to produce things that are interesting because it doesn't seem to allow for really what makes things interesting which seems to be slightly out of people's control yeah kind of a mobility that we're yeah. not dealing with static uh this is the this is meaning it's yeah. here and it's yeah. solid we're... and you can't grasp it somehow and that the best you can hope to do is be honest about what you are interested in and and honest about your own interest and maybe that can communicate in some kind of way but as soon as i go oh i'm going to say this because you are like it then you feel like you're being manipulated played you're not really being told something truthful so i'd say maybe back to the edict is that if if everyone's being given stuff that the makers don't believe in it maybe that is a kind of parodic state where everything's just untrue and that is terrible and maybe that makes me think a little bit of yeah it's Nigel Neal year of the sex olympics isn't it like, they'll like that. well year of the sex olympics is basically love island and Nigel Neal who did Quatermass did this thing where it seemed quasi-roman and greek and the on TV are the Sex Olympics and everyone watches it and who's <laughs> the best at this and it's like it was, and I imagine at the time everyone was, oh come on but basically we are in the era of Sex Olympics now <laughs> in a certain way Love Island is the Sex Olympics is it? I haven't well, seen it Well yeah what Love Island is is a distillation of the most um, present and desirable aspects of our culture, youth, beauty, sexuality. But the thing is that that's interesting about Love Island, in my opinion, is that it's they because it's apes yeah. in an environment vying yeah. for status and mates. It yeah. can't but be anthropologically interesting. What you would like, like, and um, the lobster is it like that? It's like yeah. the mainstream version of the lobster. In a sense, it is. And what you would like 
is the invisible hand of production. Because right. unlike a show like Big Brother, which preceded it you know, like 20 years ago, yeah. where the voice of the production was present, you would hear people going to the diary room. Yeah. It seems like you've got some uh, grievance with Trevor. Yeah. Why don't the two of you go in the garden and talk about it? In this show, they remove that. Right. So you get people behaving in ways that adhere to right. our awareness of structure and narrative in okay. ways that human beings would not naturally do. E.g. one woman decides to leave after having her heart broken and decides... I would guess at the behest of the production yeah. to tell her f former paramour first I'm going to be leaving but and I want you to be okay right now that's the two of us go and tell the whole group these are not decisions that a person yes. would make without direction so so it's like real time dramatists yes with like it's a live improv in a certain way but with consequences and so yeah. someone's going oh that would be good if those two did that in this way. So they must be really lightning quick in their judgments and assessments as to what would be They're continually obviously being, you know, like, God, I mean, um, I've become obsessed with some of these motifs. You know, like when you think of the idea, the Foucault's idea of surveillance, normalisation, examination. They're, right. they're continually under observation yeah. and they can continually be they can continually be managed now the the aspiration of the show is nothing more than sort of romance but that yeah. that's there's such primal forces at work you see yeah. people get confronted with oh i thought i was the kind of person that wouldn't just uh, fuck someone off if i got a better option but right. i am look and then they have to <laughs> okay. deal with that and they're only 22 and they're confronted yes. with the reality of sort of who they are they're and the stakes as well of going well if i play this right then i get rich is, yeah, is, the, how the present is, is that? Uh, no, the, the the wealth is a secondary. It just is a sort of almost a MacGuffin, just an arbitrary okay. conclusion. They're not. You don't feel there's a kind of performance element. They're not. Yes, I mean, or there does is. that wear off with time? How the, does it work? I think there is a performance element, precisely yeah. because they're all such fans of the show. Before they go in, they yeah. sort of understand the grammar of it going in there. But what's amazing is it kind of serves as this uh, absolute domain when people are eliminated from the show the yeah. remaining contestants are unable to treat it as anything other than death it's like right. like it's that it has that kind of severity people weep and like, i can't believe it it's not like well, i say killed okay. i mean like you know like executed right you know, like you know oh it's just not fair it's just not fair and they genuinely feel they don't go great they're out of the way there's no it's just a morning it, I say, I reckon, Richard, that it's somewhat like a sort of a populist ITV2 Stanford experiment where people okay. become so immersed in their environment right. that they yes. somehow forget the parameters, but we're never sure how much yeah. of it is the unseen influence of the secondary invisible power as yeah. viewers. And, yeah. and, and, and I don't suppose that yes. querying that is the main thrust of the show's success. It's more about like these people are attractive and not yeah. wearing very many clothes. Yeah. And, it's, and, and I take your point too about it being a sort of a dystopian in its in its own way well, i haven't seen it so but i shouldn't got more I shouldn't... sincerity perhaps than the the you know the, the film yes the air hostess film. in a way we're it seems like we're giving that the unnecessary oxygen of publicity by saying how great <laughs> 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 turns out love island really works i think is what we've yeah i mean it's, maybe i should see see how it unfolds there are some brutalizing moments because i suppose if you but what because you're commodifying people's emotions yes. but i think that we're already at that point i sometimes yes. liken it to the uh, liberal disgust at a figure like donald trump and yes. the rejection of the preceding decades that yeah. meant that donald trump was an inevitability yes. and it's only really he's a grotesque of what preceded as opposed to something genuinely anomalous yes the apprentice was a, i remember watching the american apprentice and it being 
extraordinary just how just how everyone just was really happy to have him judge it i i always feel that there's a thing of i feel because you're interested in mentors aren't you you're in that sort of thing i i sort of feel that part of those shows is having someone actually judge you as someone being able to say actually you're quite good and that the flood of that validation being quite enormous and just going donald trump actually thinks i'm quite good at business because you don't really (laughs) get well how do you get that i mean i love anything to do with business that's my i love the word business (laughs) i love just people talking about business. i love people saying they're going to do business but in a way that there there is no sort of authority to say that you're good at something or not you know in a maybe is society less hierarchical i don't know but there's there's a definite stamp you're getting from that you're going oh you're good and that must be quite attractive i would say that we're living it seems to me like that in a time where there is there are less structures that mimic the tribal origins of our species so that we at least have some yeah. localized and contemporary reference of this is what it's like for us all to have a shared goal and for us yes. all to have shared needs and responsibilities yes. it's harder and harder to emulate that and the perhaps the only way we experience it is vicariously or secondarily or in the sort of dreadful format of some yeah. reality tv show this thing about um i was thought then about like you're an aesthete you care a great deal about beauty and you said to me just then like i'm interested in mentors really the thing that i'm interested in is god i've become like mm-hmm. a, a religious nut is what's okay. happened to me why a nut <laughs> <laughs> why not just religious because i thought the nut bit really softened it a little it's right, yes you've always got to add some mentality in there to yeah okay and, and how's wife, that going i prefer it yeah. since i've become a religious nut it's and re- how specifically relax. um when you say religious, because in a way, gosh, I'm on such a Susan Sontag um, riff at the moment. I've never she, known anyone so devoted to I Susan Sontag. I've loves, written her name down three times. I love times. Susan Sontag. She's amazing. She said, you can't really be religious any more than you can say, I speak language. You've got to choose one. Oh. What about that? What do you say to that? You say, I speak English. You don't go, I speak language. <laughs> I would never say that, would I? Yeah, but it's quite interesting. Although you would be able to pick a... up that it was English. Yes, from Chomsky would immediately go. He'd break well, it down English. within thirty minutes, <laughs> even <laughs> if you'd made up the thing. Use the word language okay. there. I speak. That's yeah. That's Saxon, Germanic. Yeah, I say it's English that this guy speaks. Yeah, could have saved me some time by saying that. So, yeah, how specific do you get? Not that specific. Not because because the way that i'm encountering and investigating religion mm-hmm. it seems to for, for me what i'm interested in is what appear to be perennial truths that are about personal practice and yep. beliefs and faith yep. rather than doctrines and dogma that can be used to evaluate or indeed judge yep. other people and like Huxley's interest in perennialism looking for the universal themes I, I'm interested in fact I suppose in the the where psychiatry yeah. and spirituality start to combine and curiously this um um avenue of investigation has led me to note corollary between post-structuralist thought which in believe me i'm not an expert in (laughs) freaking baudrillard nightmare (laughs) nightmare that it aligns pretty nicely with Mm -hmm. aspects of eastern mysticism which similarly i'm not an expert in 
well. So this is two things I'm not okay. an expert in. Yeah, fusing together. You to... could have said any two nouns, and I would not be an expert in them. So <laughs> yeah, uh, in so much as, uh, for example, that um, in, in in Baudrillard of you know Foucault, I recognise mm-hmm. the, the obvious distinction there. But like Foucault, I was thinking about earlier because I was thinking that he takes like a, a superficially quite abstract subject, like uh, you know c- crime and discipline or whatever that is, or punishment and discipline, yeah. and then sort of breaks down st- structures, narratives, and stories to demonstrate the way that power operates. Yeah. And it seems to me that in your book, you are making broader political points about the nature and function of art and culture which i suppose has been a present motif throughout the work that you have yourself created that that this is pretending to be that this it the its makers cannot deliver on their promise or intention and in that gap there's the revelation of i would say there's so much joy and fun in what you do so it's not like they've got the mendacious nasty intentions over <laughs> there at romford hospital yeah but, or general uh, but like uh but uh but here when we're talking yeah. about something seemingly sort of vacuous yes I, I i can sense that there is something nefarious in it well i suppose the other side of it is where within this book there's a character ostensibly of me uh, as film critic trying to make something out of nothing. So that's the other aspect of it. Rather than me going through this film saying it's rubbish, the character in the film thinks it's the best film ever. So I, I just, and it reminds me of every great moment in my life and it's really connected to me. So I also find yeah the self aggrandizing of of someone trying to excavate and and how silly analysis can be yeah. uh funny too so hopefully you're trying to cancel out uh, a sort of self righteousness yeah, or a, or a, or a looking down on it and yeah i don't know about sort of scanning things so much for meaning below i'm a, i think i've got a bit suspicious of that idea that you can excavate meaning from something i i do feel that why because I think there's an idea that there's the kind of text and there's a subtext and the text is both a subtext in the same way that it's important, say, with a poem, that you can't just go, look, I'll tell you what Ode to a Grecian Urn's about, basically, is this. You sort of go, well, part of what's good about it, if you think it's good or if you like this great symphony, is, well, listen to it, don't go... This is how it goes. And there's a little bit. Hang on. You have to go, well, maybe you need to hear it. And it's not like the best bit. Look, this bit. And that could be good. And that might, some people might go, that's when I heard the original, I liked your one better. But there's something about the the form and the content that are equally important. And I think it can be silly to just go, this is what the thing is. And I'm going to get it and i'm aren't i clever for understanding it and i think you're so, right because i don't know if you're owed to grecian an example or any effective piece of art your personal reaction to it is occurring in your own consciousness your own being and how could yeah. it not be subjective how could you not be having a deeply personal relationship with with it so yeah the kind and of you're in it in a way you're not 
if you're outside of it going, oh, yeah, that's doing that thing quite well yeah. at the moment. You're... It is offensive, the didactic thrust of I'll tell you what's good about this symphony. Yeah, um, clearly. But like because personally, I was not introduced to culture. I'm not suggesting that you were in, in a way that was very um, thorough. I like yeah. it. Like it, I was a person that really fell upon analysis yeah. qu- quite gratefully. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, what is it I'm supposed to like? And why is it I'm supposed to like that? And why yeah. is that good? And my yeah. experience of education, Richard, was all always like right here's this thing that's a masterpiece and yeah i think it's fucking boring yeah <laughs> that was like but, again yeah. and again like the experience of that so when i started to when people helped me to interact with culture yeah. differently primarily i think through you know education or uh, uh, and uh, analyses yeah it, uh, i felt like oh wow i can connect to yeah. this stuff well, i'm amazingly uncultured um as in i didn't have a kind of I know, cultural. I've read about your background. I know you've not sort of well, hatched out of a yeah. Faberge egg. Well, that's what you say. <laughs> but it's more... Yeah, it's got to come from interest, hasn't it? It's got to... It can't be just sort of grim work or you're being told that this thing is interesting. It's got to come from a state of interest and inquiry and some form of joy. Otherwise, it is just grim labour, isn't it? Yeah, what was your wife saying about beauty in her, like, here's Richard Iwoddy talking about yes. his wife's well, Lyd- mask. Yes, well, Lydia, yes, um, who does the heavy lifting of the humanity of our relationship. <laughs> um, so who's a, a person, uh, a proper Well, you Riley stand by. Well, I am useless. She provides all of the beauty and moral centre. <laughs> um, well, it's pretty, I mean, I couldn't, it's, I think, gosh, this is tough for me to in any way do justice to, but I guess it's the idea that I suppose beauty as being a repository, well, even repository is not the right word, beauty being related to truth um, and, and the interrelationship between those two and how can beauty... Yeah, how 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 can something be beautiful and untruthful? Can something be true and not beautiful? And and that relationship, there is another, there's a third one, which when I've got to remember it, but my brain's, I mean, it's just the decay, the mental decay. I mean, is there mental decay? It's totally desperate. It's like grated coconut. Mental decay. That's all I'm on. It's really, it's just like a sort of deflating slide that I'm just going down into sort of algae oh no that's that's where i'm at we're deconstituting into algae yeah that's what i mean i've just got no brain but you know my gosh i suppose well she'll tell you she's more interesting or gosh you know well form and harmony and what does it mean for something to be beautiful and i suppose you know can something i suppose yeah where does it come from exactly and i suppose that would be related to the most fundamental theological questions, I guess, of what is creation mm. and all of those things. Tune in next week to find <laughs> out who, what, where, and how. Do you meditate? And I, you see, no, basically, I don't meditate. Open this door because it's so can, hot. Can but you, you could do it. You're near. I will. And um, can you? Maybe you can tell me how to. I. Someone once tried to um, <laughs> massage my back because I couldn't move my back and they declared me 
unmassageable. <laughs> I just went, I've never seen so much tension in one person. Are you using that as an example that there are just fundamental principles that you will not adhere to? Like no. people are massageable. Richard is not massageable. No, my practice thus and, far, it's not looking good. I. I you yeah, are I massageable. You freaking try it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like built on. I'm what like, did you do? Keep reacting and saying stuff. It, and twitching. Just and nothing. Just up. nothing happened. He just kept trying to. It just it, clearly I couldn't move. He did, I couldn't touch. Some people can't touch their toes. I can barely touch my knees. I have no flexibility. Do you take drugs? No. Did you ever? I mean, this is a rare moment off. No, I didn't. I mean, I have. I took paracetamol earlier today. Right. Now we're getting somewhere. But within the recommended dose. Okay. And, <laughs> and I'll give it an extra hour until I take the next one, <laughs> if I need it. I'll, I'll see when this one starts to tail off. I'm not. I'm pretty, I'd say, relatively abstemious. I'm not. I've always felt that I'm just not very healthy. I think you need a kind of constitution for certain things. Mm. I've it, got no constitution. So you don't meditate, why? And how is it relating to your unmassageable um, nature? I feel it's a, a, an ability to sort of relax and be present, which I'm not very good at. You're a very present person. Really? Yeah, yeah, you are. That's not the right. feedback I've What about getting. this when you're doing all of this uh, like sort of classical English uh, modesty it's thing. really not like I don't think I'm modest. I don't think you're uh, mimicking anyone. I think you're really genuine. I'm not I, criticizing I you, but I'm just far. saying that when you're doing that, when you like uh, that guy wound you up on Channel Four, you were very sort of slice, you know, like a... I see that just felt like a normal conversation to me. That was like a regular conversation that I'd have. It just that was a strange situation whereby I think I'd done what an interview. Happened? I'd done an interview for a paper, and then. I think the interview ended up being written up as being me being uncomfortable with interviews. But I don't know how it came about or whatever. Well, which you can imagine, because you do say that you're uncomfortable with interviews. You don't give or, straight answers. You're not willing to take any compliments. You don't play well with others. <laughs> um, but in a way, it was more just someone said, how do you find being interviewed? And I, rather than being gracious and go, I love being interviewed, I'd say, I find it a bit awkward. But not hugely, just a bit awkward, just slightly awkward, as in... It's unusual. Most people aren't interviewed. I mean, it's just odd to get, well, no, I've always expected to be interviewed. I feel it's weird. I, I feel the, the, the um, direction of inquiry today has been disproportionate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would like to ask you some questions, um, but I know that's not quite the uh, You're thing. an artist, aren't you? I was um, always a bit of a show-off. So, like, for me, when I started being well, interviewed, I felt like, yes, I can see why you, you know, would but you're, inquire. You're, but you're engaged and interesting and you discursive and you think in a live way. Whereas I think a lot of people I've met who, who write or who do music, the best of them is the music or their writing. You know, the reason they did it is because they can't talk in a certain way. They just go, well, if I could speak, I wouldn't have written the song. I mean, it's so much easier just to speak if I were able to do it. So th that particular interview was, they said, do you want to come and talk about interviewing? And and interviews being strange, I went, okay, I can do that. And then before it, I think they said, would you be willing to talk about maybe race in the media? I said, well, not particularly because I don't feel I have a particular right to talk about it because this is what I feel. I feel, for example, say you're uh, maybe uh, would be seen as commentating on things politically. And I think that's really good, partially because you're here next week, as it were. 
what I feel is that if you're going around promoting something, you just go, here's my political tuppence. I'll see you next time I've got a book out. <laughs> I kind of feel that if you're going to talk about that, you should have, you should stick around. You can't just sort of lob something out and then just disappear. You need to stay engaged and be in that kind of conversation and be, um, what's the word, kind of... Um, Invested. accountable yeah, for, uh, for what you're saying in a certain way and be willing to carry on the conversation but you recognise and in fact I think partly what you were saying in this interview or certainly interviews that had that same timbre is that there is a process of commodification that that film that you're analysing in your yeah. new book the, the, uh, the, um, the process of junkets and interviews and promo is com it's a commodity my, yeah. one of my friends who's a famous actor said that when you're like at, at that point where you're doing a big Hollywood studio movie yeah. and you're on billboards and you're getting flown, flown around on studio private jets and yeah. like and it's you feel it you know if you're particularly if you're a sort of person like me that's felt quite inadequate and welcomes some mm -hmm. uh, glamour and privilege as a to kind of redress that feeling of inferiority you sort of take it personally oh I've achieved this thing yeah. and then you learn that these are just the symptoms of other people making money off you and you yes. are sort of <laughs> an yeah. irrelevant superficial component yeah I remember Spike Lee saying something, you know, the best paid basketball in the world is still like being exploited in a certain way. And you are, but you know, a loss. I have never been in that world. I've always like been not. What about when you were doing them Hollywood movies and doing an American well, remake of IT Crowd? Well, I did one, I did this one film, <laughs> which was incredibly unsuccessful. Um, ben Stiller was an executive producer on a film I did called Submarine. And so he said, do you want to be in this film? And I went, okay. And my wife said that I looked like I'd won a competition to be in a film. And that's how I look like. And I remember being in a scene and going, why is Ben still looking at me? Oh, I'm in a scene with him. And that's how unsuited to, I just went, this is really weird. I meant to pretend I'm in a thing. And, but you're, so I did one, but again, it was really, um, I didn't kind of pursue it. It sort of just happened. And I haven't done anything yet, uh, again, or yet, that, maybe that's Freudian. Um, I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I don't, I didn't go to the premiere. I haven't seen the film. I wasn't, I just wasn't, there was no parties. There was no, there was just nothing. We lived, um, our nearest shot was Ikea where we lived. And when we went to the place that we were staying during the film, someone went, that's a crack house. <laughs> I went, oh, okay, that's, a, that's where we're living. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of glamorous in any way. It was long. And I liked the director who's called Akiva Schaefer. He did The Lonely Island. And so he was like kind of a video guy and sort of doing these silly comedies. So it didn't feel like, oh, I'm in Hollywood now. I wouldn't, it wasn't even filmed in Hollywood, it was in Atlanta, <laughs> you know. So it just didn't have that feel. And also, hmm, I don't know. You see, I met my wife when I was 24. And so that's kind of where yeah. I've been. <laughs> yeah. In terms of my interest and, and sort of life yes. is there. So that is... Um, a great mercy for me. I mean, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for that. I mean, not that I show it, of course. Of course not. Make sure I don't show it to her. That would seem weak and would diminish your power exactly. in the relationship. It's much better that I just am not Churlish, any fun aloof, to be around. Cold, cruel. And, and rubbish. <laughs>
that's the way to. I really got married. Um, I, I didn't get married till uh, like I was, I don't know, forty or, and I, I think that I was. It's not, I'm not an idiot, so I recognised sure. all this stuff was daft no. about being all scooped up into celebrity. I'm only saying it as in, I don't feel it through any virtue. Yeah, it's just but your constitution also, almost. Also, you know, you you are handsome, so that's an issue. So oh, come on, look at you. Us. You're a very odd person. I am quite odd. Because you're a very um, beautiful looking man. Well, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> not that talked does about enough. <laughs> that did seem more strange when you yeah, did that. Yeah, it did that. seem strange. Um, but like, uh, I said, but I, I clearly was more willing to embrace it and investigate it, and and and, and I must. But isn't it slightly thrust upon you know in a way? You yeah, because you can't will it into being. Yeah, exactly. You have to endow quite it. Quite a lot of people are trying to sort of uh, live in a way where everyone finds them terribly attractive. It's not really like you. I don't know what are you going to do. Yes, and when it was like when I recognise what you're saying about your relationship with Lydia is that once you have a domestic destination, there mm. is a, like my whole life seems different, and I suppose to touch again upon a point I made earlier about envying your success as a director. I love that film Submarine. I love the stuff you've contributed with like to with other comedians, like obviously the Bush and stuff. I, I read your book that Iwadi on Iwadi. I think you're brilliant and funny. I even watched gadget man and like travel man and all of that kind of stuff i would never take to the ridiculous degree of appearing on the damn thing oh why would you i mean <laughs> no, no i would i would that, I would. that era's passed as well <laughs> really those, those oh yes i yes that's you I don't sure. make those programs no more i've done the last one that i'm going to do and joe lysis is going to do then what would you call it vol two i'm astonished that you even do things like that right because not because you're not good at it because no. you're very funny at quipping when you're on that basket sledge thing with i can't remember who was either the lad out of um you know robert webb okay um, right. but like you know and like or with johnny vegas i felt like a sand ballerina you're very like um like in the you know you're good at establishing rapport with mm. all these people but it just seems talking to you that you're a person who's if not repulsed by a celebrity certainly yeah. sort of kind of skeptical and un prickly or not mean prickly sort of I don't yes. know uncomfortable well in a way I suppose that in some ways the premise of that show right. to an extent is that I'm not a natural traveler and I find it very hard being away from home and so and again the only like gadget man happened because Stephen Fry can't do everything like if if Stephen Fry could he would have continued doing gadget man and that would have been fine but it just sometimes it, these things are weirdly unsolicited and I suppose sometimes you go, okay, I'll try that. As in, I've never, I've often felt, well, I mean, it's a mistake you casting me in this. I mean, I always sort of feel someone's making a mistake, but I go, but okay, let's try it. Let's see what happens if I do this thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't quite know. A, a thing slightly changed when um, I did Submarine in that it was the first time I'd ever done press and because up until then just hadn't done it um, as a sort of quasi-principle. But I found myself doing press for that because it was an indie film and it's the only way... I hate the term indie, can I retract that? It was a, a cheap film. <laughs> so it needed publicising and then you end up on in an arena that you never thought you'd be doing supposedly some art film and now you are on T4 saying come see the art film and so it seemed like you were 
already doing that in a way. And so I ended up, I guess, with a kind of persona from doing interviews about something that, yeah, and I never thought I would have one. Yeah. But it turns out, I guess you, you find out you people react to you in a certain way. It's not quite in your control. No, no, it's not. If you have some sort of a, like a, I don't know, archetypal or essential energy that people respond to that can be utilized, that you can build a sitcom around and you have mm. good chemistry with your, like, you know, then yeah, suddenly, but I suppose yeah. when it's within, like in a scripted narrative, like uh, IT crowd, yeah. you're, did you, like, that's like a, that was like a studio show, that wasn't was it? With an show. audience. Did you yes. enjoy that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have stage fright, so I, I find that hard, but I really liked uh, the cast I like Graham and you know I love Father Ted and so that was um yeah that was good to do but I you sort of when you're in something I just feel you're you're slightly surrendering to the director yeah. and you're going okay what would you like or how would you like me to do this um and I guess through directing um you sort of see how hard acting is it's quite I it's quite useful acting in order to be a director that actors are really trying to make something work and they need you to be clear and you can't just focus on your own problems and your own schedule and your own trying to get this shot in this way you need to be able to put that to one side and be able to speak to actors because they're you know they're the communicative presence in anything are you uh, comfortable with that kind of intimacy and process w when you're making submarine? I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I really like... Um, the best thing I find is, is here's something that you've written or you have been involved with writing and someone infuses it with um, humanity and it's better than... And now it's them and you can sort of behave like a fan. That's what I like. I, I imagine most people start writing because they really enjoyed reading or they make films because they like watching films. So you get to kind of be in that fan position, but in really this great position of being quite close to it. It's obviously stressful and you're going, oh, is this going to be wrong? And am I doing this right? But, you know, say recently I was just doing the audio book of one of these with Jesse Eisenberg. He's doing some of it. And just hearing him do it, it was just I could enjoy it. And that was a very strange situation. There's just something, it's just like laughing with someone you like. And that was great. So I really like that are you gonna, bit of it. Are you going to direct more films then? Um, I'd like to, but I don't want to leave my house. So there's a tension there. But I, I think I will later um, when it's, because um, I want to see my wife and children as much as possible. And so it's just doing it less. And it's real going to an oil rig. And I I know I wouldn't quite be there. I'd be back. I'd w be wanting to be back at home. So writing books I like because that's very compatible. And it doesn't feel like I don't know. You're very self-aware person. You're not. It's not urgent. I suppose is it really? Like uh, like since having uh, being married and having children for me like it was 
I don't know. Like, uh, they required a quite a, a, some tenacity and, uh, like, uh, I would say, uh, throwing off the idea that there's something I'm supposed to be doing, there's a person yeah. I'm supposed to be, there's a life I'm supposed to be living, there's these things I'm yeah. meant to achieve. For me to sort of go, no, it's nothing is more important than being present when your children are getting up and going to bed yeah. and watching them and doing your half-assed version of parenting. But, I mean, half-assed is a good percentage. I mean, quarter-assed, I mean, I'm... I'm not even a... It's barely any arse. I'm, I'm a point of a percentage of an arse at it. And, but, yeah, and it's not like, oh, this is domesticity. It, it feels more like, oh, well, this is partnership or this is, or you're not... Yeah, it's not like some realm that you're kind of receding into. It just feels, well, that is where you are. That's where life is somehow. Your family's back here now. We've They're been talking here. for we've been talking for seventy minutes. Good gravy! Hold on a minute. It doesn't seem like. A, let me conclude the podcast in a more professional way. Okay, it's been ever so lovely talking to Thank you. Thank you very much for Thank having you. me. It's very nice to talk to you, and I I wish you'd talked more about what you were thinking because well, it sounds you more interesting. need only ask a question. I'm a self-obsessed man. And I, I could nothing... have asked a question. <laughs> what you did I there, Richard, is, while being this sort of modest wallflower, you did nothing. absolute but... <laughs> egotism that ran rampant for 17 minutes where I banged on and didn't even reciprocate. That's what's come out. The, the bitter truth. But the bitter truth. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me, Russell Brand, or tweet me at RustyRockets with the hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, go back and listen to Karamo or Lena Dunham. And if you like them, you can listen to their podcast on Luminary 2. Please sign up to my mailing list on RussellBrand.com so I can communicate directly with you. You'll be the first to know about my upcoming live shows and receive exclusive mailing list only content. Also look at Rebirth on Netflix if you want. I mean, I don't mind anymore. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand.